Welcome to the Australian Naval History podcast series. It is a production of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, the Submarine Institute of Australia, and the Sea Power Centre Australia. I'm Commander Alastair Cooper. In 1942, during the Second World War, the threat to Australia was as near and as grave as it ever had been. On the 19th of February, the Port of Darwin was attacked by 242 Japanese aircraft from the Naval Carrier Task Force which had attacked Pearl Harbour. As the gateway to Northern Australia and a vital base in the war just to our north, the attack was the largest single one ever mounted by a foreign power in Australia. 235 people were killed, 11 ships were sunk and 30 aircraft lost. The attack came at the start of a prolonged campaign along Australia's northern coast. In this episode, we will explore the naval war against Japan in Northern Australia. I'm joined by three former naval officers turned historians. Via Skype from Darwin, Dr. Tom Lewis, a leading expert on military history in Northern Australia. He was the director of the Darwin Military Museum for five years and has written 14 books, many of which are about the North. Dr. David Stevens from the Australian War Memorial he has also written extensively on Australian naval history, including on the enemy submarine campaign in Australian waters during World War II. And also by Mr John Perryman, the Director of Strategic and Historical Studies at the Sea Power Centre Australia. Gentlemen, welcome. David, if I could start with you. In the lead up to World War II, what was the strategic importance of the Port of Darwin, um, and indeed ports around Australia? Was there a plan to keep them open, open? Most certainly, because the ports are vital for um, our economy and for any war fighting we intend to do. And as early as the 1920s, they'd been looking at the vulnerability of our ports, particularly in the context of enemy submarine attacks. And the three most vulnerable ports at that stage, they were saying, were Sydney, um, Albany in Western Australia, and of course, Darwin. Because Darwin is, as you mentioned, not just the gateway to Northern Australia, but it also tends to be the last port that our forces would visit before they went overseas, if they're heading north. And so um, during this period before the war, there was a lot of um, looking at how the ports could be defended um, against the various threats. And in the case of submarines, there was particularly advances in technology. Um, things like ASDIC, which today we'd call sonar, which is echo ranging on an object. Um, and also passive defences of listening to the noise of the submarine, either um, by the noise it makes or by its magnetic signature. Mm -hmm. And places like Darwin were used um, because of their vulnerability and their importance for some of the first installations in Australia um, for things like a, an anti-submarine loop, which detects the magnetic signature, mm -hmm. or a harbour defence ASDIC, which is a, a stationary ASDIC on the shore, which sends a pulse out and detects things coming into the harbour. And of course, for physical barriers like um, anti-torpedo nets or anti-submarine nets to actually st stop a, an enemy penetrating. So all these plans are being looked at um, and they're combining it with ideas about what sort of forces you need to base there. Mm -hmm. And in the 20s, they were talking about up to 11 anti-submarine vessels being based in Darwin for these purposes. Now, during the 30s, um, as the strategy was changing and we're thinking about how we were going to get the, um, the main fleet 
from European waters out to the Far East, Darwin becomes, becomes an important point, uh, port for launching Australia's units and particularly our heavy cruisers, Australia and Canberra, and eventually Albatross, our seaplane carrier. They were looking at using those to um, patrol between Java and Darwin um, to protect, or not necessarily to stop the Japanese moving in if the British fleet's coming uh, to the east, but at least to detect it and report where it was. So Darwin is going to be a vital base throughout. And plus, as I mentioned before, the economy. You need to keep, if you're going to keep your economy running, you need to keep your ports open. Okay. Tom, if I could turn to you. In 1942, Darwin was, was quite different to the, the vibrant city we know now. Um, could, you, could you describe um, the city as it then was and, and Northern Australia? And could you also talk a little bit about the patterns of activity in and around Darwin? And, and finally, the defences and, and what work was done to strengthen them um, as, as the war became imminent. Darwin uh, was a small port, uh, really only talking about 10,000 uh, civilians who lived here. And as the war developed, uh, you saw more forces moving north. Uh, but um, as we've uh, heard previously, uh, Darwin was uh, small in terms of naval forces. Uh, there were uh, not many in terms of even small warships based here. So the anti-submarine boom net was uh, developed pretty quickly and efficiently uh, by measure of comparison. The one in Sydney was not finished when the Japanese minted submarines attacked in May 42. But Darwin's uh, was going uh, well in time uh, to stem any possibility of Japanese uh, surface vessels or submarines getting into the port and shelling it. It's a very protected harbour. Uh, it was also ringed by um, six-inch guns and there, was, there were two 9.2-inch uh, anti-surface guns being developed, although they weren't finished by the time the Japanese arrived. And, of course, when they did arrive, they arrived by aircraft rather than uh, ship. So instead of uh, ships coming and bombarding the town, uh, you had aircraft flying over the top of the defences, so to speak, and uh, negating that sort of defence that way. But um, it was uh, very cut off. Uh, it was uh, primarily there because of the undersea telegraph uh, and the need for a northern base. Um, there was originally thoughts that defences of a North Shore base at Thursday Island, but uh, Lord Kitchener in a visit uh, had said otherwise, and uh, slowly the defences of um, the submarine boom net, uh, the shore guns, Larrakia Barracks, which is an army base, uh, were slowly developed in the 1930s. And um, by the time the, the war had uh, got hot in terms of uh, the Pacific War, uh, it was ringed by anti-aircraft uh, anti defences, uh, 16 of them all up, and uh, these consisted of 3.7-inch um, anti-aircraft guns, and uh, they were joined by 50 calibre and lighter rifle-calibre machine guns. So uh, the, the, the civilians were being moved out by evacuation, and uh, they were being replaced by uh, uniformed people, were moving up here, though certainly it was um, the second team in many respects, given that uh, many of our people had been already deployed to Europe to fight against the Germans and the Italians. Okay, thank you. John, the Coast Watchers uh, became famous later in the war. Um, were they part of the defences that were being put up around Northern Australia and around Darwin? Certainly, um, early in the war, and particularly on the 19th of February 1942, the volunteer coast watchers played a part, and specifically 
uh, one father, John McGrath, who was running a mission on Bathurst Island. Now, Father McGrath, um, he'd been equipped with a, a radio transceiver. Um, he operated this mission which looked after about 300 Tiwi Islanders. And on the morning of that raid, he looked up and saw this formation of aircraft. It was a, a very, very clear day, 32 degrees. Um, there had been, you know, some expectation that there might be an attack, but nothing so far. So when he saw this formation of aircraft overhead, he had the presence of mind to race back to his, um, uh, his digs, mm -hmm. turn on his radio transceiver, warm up the valves, and he actually passed a message to Darwin at 9.35 that morning. That message was received at 9.37 by a Darwin coastal station. Uh, it was duly noted down, procedures were followed, and then a telephone call was placed to the RAF operations alerting them that they'd received this. And this is where I think a little bit of the fog of war comes into it because unfortunately earlier that morning um, there'd been an incident where a flight of Hudson bombers had been returning to Darwin mm -hmm. and one of the Army's anti-aircraft batteries had in fact opened fire on this thing because they had not adhered to measures that had been put in place to prevent that very thing from happening. So. To say that they were a little bit jumpy or twitchy at RAF operations would be fair. Um, so at first there was a bit of confusion about whether this, was, this report from a volunteer uh, coast watcher was in fact credible. The other thing which was muddying the waters was earlier that day there'd been a flight of uh, Kitty Hawk aircraft uh, sent on a mission to Timor uh, due to bad weather that had been turned around and the mission had been aborted. So they were also incoming. So they weren't sure whether this report had uh, something to do with that either. Um, so there was quite some delay in that. Um, eventually, uh, one of the people in RAF operations, uh, through a matter of course, notified Naval Headquarters ashore. And when that message was received, they calculated that if it was a mounting raid, they had about 12 minutes to you know, take some sort of action. So they did sound the alarm and, and there was some warning given uh, prior to that. So certainly to answer your question, in this instance, yes, it was the volunteer coast watchers, which is slightly different from the, the coast watchers which were set up around the Pacific and operated by the Naval Intelligence uh, Division. Um, the other comment I'd make about your previous question concerning the port is Darwin itself was, was a very, very important port, but it, it was a little bit... Um, uh, a bit of a uh, what would you call a contradiction in terms because it itself was reliant on the sea. Mm. There wasn't a rail link which connected it with the rest of Australia. There was one that went south uh, some way, but after that it was tracks and, and dirt roads to Alice Springs. Um, there were oil tanks which were vital to the pre-positioning of our ships when it was going to operate as a forward operating uh, base. And by the time of the Darwin raids in February '42. I think there was about 10,000 10, tonne um, oil facilities there in Darwin. Tom would probably be able to confirm that. But um, the point is this, that to fill those tanks, Darwin itself was reliant on the sea. So all of those things that David has discussed and Tom have discussed about the fixed naval defences were as important to Darwin for maintaining itself as a forward operating base as well as maintaining its own supply lines back to Australia. See where I'm coming from? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. so you, you, you can't conceive of it out of context 
uh, of its maritime supply I think routes in and out. This whole story of Darwin has so many moving parts to it and they're all kind of interconnected. Mm. But, you know, being reliant on the sea, being important to the sea and our operations from the sea, that's all part of this story. Nicely put. David, after the attacks on Pearl Harbour, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Malaya, the, the importance of, of Northern Australia and indeed its vulnerability um, changed quite dramatically. Can you describe the response of the Australian government and allied governments? Yeah, I think um, confusion and desperation comes in there a, a little bit. Um, one of the problems for Australia was the fact that we had relatively small forces and very soon we were being told what to do by our larger partners. And one of the initial decisions was the way that the um, Australia area was broken up, both geographically and administratively, such that you had the, the ABDA area, the Australia, Britain, Dutch, American area, yep. um, which covered the area to our north, but didn't actually include Darwin or our coastline, northern coastline. And then the Anzac area, which covered the rest of Australia. And obviously that works perhaps not too badly when you're trying to control operations in the Dutch East Indies, but as the Japanese are moving south, it doesn't make much sense to have the northern coast and Darwin out, not in that area. And, but that didn't happen until late January when the Abdu area was ex expanded. But even those areas didn't last very long. By April, there being the whole of Australia is becoming the Southwest Pacific area um, with General MacArthur as the Supreme Commander. And we're basically giving up to the Americans our ability, our defences. But during that early period, um, you've got to understand that there weren't, Australia didn't have many forces. Um, certainly the Americans had far more ships to the north than we did. And in fact, during that early period when there was the thought that um, you know, the Australian um, Navy is actually thinking of withdrawing its forces from Darwin because there's so many American units up there. Why do we need ours up there as well? That didn't happen. Um, but th these, uh, uh, one of the um, I think you, things you need to remember about Australia in the Second World War is actually what it was doing. Mm. And one of the things that um, the Prime Minister, John Curtin, used to reiterate constantly is Australia's, the best thing for Australia's interests is to act as a conduit for American supplies. Be an mm. American supply base, that will allow us to look after our interests because it keeps the Americans interested in what's going on. So keep that as a background context. It's not just Australia doing these things. It's actually, um, really, it's an American supply base. That's the important th part that Australia plays in the, the Second World War in this period. Thank you. Tom, on the 15th of February uh, 1942, uh, the, the British base at Singapore fell, uh, and four days later, later Darwin was bombed. Um, John's given us a good lead in um, from the uh, the, the first detection of the Japanese aircraft. But I was wondering if you could describe in a little bit more detail what happened during the bombing. Robert uh, Buell is a name that comes to mind. He actually was the first man to die in the defence of Northern Australia. Um, he was a, a USAF pilot flying a Kitty Hawk and he attacked a Japanese flying boat north of the Tiwi Islands, which are north of Darwin on the 15th of February, they shot each other down and uh, one of the crew members of the flying boat died. Uh, the others survived and eventually were um, picked up by the Allies and imprisoned, uh, but uh, Buell has never been found and neither of the aircraft 
And uh, it's a sort of a, a lonely death, but it's uh, significant in uh, light of the previous comments. Yes, the Americans were here. Uh, Darwin's the first place where the Americans and the Australians fight together in World War II. And uh, significant in that the British Empire, which we look to for our protection and salvation, so to speak, uh, was desperately fighting a, a, um, an action for its survival across the other side of the world. So here are the Americans and uh, a testimony to that. Um, more Americans uh, or people in American service died on that first day of the 19th of February than Australians. 128 out of the 235 who died were American or in American service. So uh, hmm. the, um, the day was Thursday. Um, the tide was going out of interest in naval people always. Uh, it was a bright, sunny day. It had been a cyclone um, in the weeks previously, but it was one of those wet season days where it's uh, very humid, hot, uh, but big white fluffy clouds, um, good flying weather. And uh, the attack really commenced from the southeast uh, with um, waves of Japanese high-level Cape bombers coming in to lay their bombs near the wharf. In fact, um, that's the one that's normally put forward the commemorations are two minutes to ten. But in fact, there had been, and I think it's been alluded to previously, about Father McGrath uh, on Bathurst Island. And he'd been shot up by some of the Zero fighters that had been sent down to destroy a, um, a transport aircraft that had been spotted on the runway there. And those Japanese aircraft cut the corner. And uh, rather than make a big circle, they made their way in a direct line to Darwin. And knowing that the port itself was to be attacked first uh, by surprise, they set about the boom net ships and uh, the action commenced there and uh, that's largely unknown that the boom net ships didn't get time to radio the situation. It's about eight to ten kilometres away from the Darwin port. But uh, the majority of the 188 aircraft had made their way in this big circle and now they started their uh, devastating work of high-level bombers from the Cates which released their bombs from 10,000 feet. Uh, very, very accurately, they were aimed at the wharf and they hit it, uh, along with the Neptuna, which was a, a large freighter, which was unloading depth charges of all things on that day. And uh, the bomb pattern continued up through the uh, approaches to the town, hit the administrator's residence, uh, the equivalent of the governor, because uh, we were a territory and still are, and then the town itself and hit the post office and killed most of the staff there. So this is a devastating assault from these uh, very experienced uh, Cape bombers. And these are the same pilots' aircraft. In fact, four of the aircraft carriers have been engaged at Pearl Harbor. So they come south. As a sideways comment, I always point out that we've been attacked by submarines the previous month, and one of them lies outside Darwin as testimony to HMAS uh, Deloraine's ability in anti-submarine warfare. Uh, but that had been kept secret because we were intending to get inside the submarine. The I-124 still lies there with her 80 people uh, between Darwin and the Tiwi Islands today in 200 feet of water, 60 metres or so, very deep, and has never been entered. But um, that was a, a footnote, if you like, uh, to that main attack. When the submarine attempts to mine the port where four submarines had failed, uh, the Japanese had another think and they sent the aircraft carrier task force south. And uh, this time they caught us uh, by surprise and they did a great job of over the next 20 minutes or so attacking the port. Uh, they sunk nine ships inside, uh, two outside uh, near the Tiwis. They destroyed 30 aircraft and 235 of their people died in this devastating raid from the high-level bombers, which were then replaced by Val dive bombers, which said about the shipping in the harbour.
The uh, largest loss of life on the day from a single platform was USS Peary, mm. uh, which went down with 88 United States Navy sailors losing their lives. And uh, the other ships were in the main freighters. Um, one had the prefix HMAS, HMAS Navy, though she was uh, about a small lugger uh, sunk near the wharf. And uh, when the uh, smoke had cleared and the Zeros um, escorted away the, the bombers and all delivered their bomb loads, uh, the place was a, a smoking wreck. Um, and uh, little did we know that there was another attack force on the way because we got bombed again at quarter to 12. We've um, alluded a number of times uh, to the, the fact that Darwin is, is important, not just in and of itself, but f um, for the, um, f as a, a base for activity uh, and, and, and for all of the um, effort that went into supplying it as well. So there was a lot going on. John, I'm just wondering if you can talk about the tempo of this activity more broadly and, and then outline the Japanese campaign plan and the impact that it had. I think I'd like to start with uh, the Japanese campaign plan. Uh, yeah. Why did they attack Darwin? Sure. It, it seems to be a pretty good place to start. Um, essentially, their operations were moving south rapidly. Um, they were about to mount their main assault on Timor. And what they didn't want is they didn't want Darwin to be used uh, as a facility from which a counteroffensive could be launched. Mm -hmm. So it was really important that if they were going to secure their southern perimeter, um, of their, their greater strategic plan, which was the, the Great East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, yeah. uh, and, and hold that. So they wanted the resources in Southeast Asia. They worked out that if they could get down as far south as Timor, New Guinea, and make that the southern edge of that, and then hold it and make use of those resources, that would be enough. But in order to do that, what they didn't want is they didn't want Darwin and other facilities across northern Australia to be able to be used to mount counter-offensives. So that was the reason why, very important. Keeping in mind also that as they secured their, their sphere of interest, they always had in the back of their mind this fixation on the decisive battle with the Americans. Now they'd already hit um, Pearl Harbor. They didn't quite achieve their aims there because the carriers were at sea. So in the back of uh, Yamamoto's mind, he's still itching for this great decisive battle which will eliminate that last threat to maintaining that defensive perimeter. But Darwin was always going to be a thorn in their side. Now, from a naval perspective, there were all kinds of vessels up there. Um, we've heard, heard from Tom about the, the boom net vessels, the gatekeeping vessels, some of the naval luggers, uh, the corvettes, which were doing very, very good work outside the harbour. In fact, sinking one of the submarines that uh, Tom referred to previously. So you get a bit of a sense about uh, those, those things that were going on at the time and prior to the attack. Later on, of course, we would use this as a stepping stone uh, to New Guinea and we would have other vessels there, fair mile motor launches, harbour defence motor launches, all of which were doing really, really useful and diverse work. Now, one of the things I think that uh, viewers might need to be reminded of mm. is Darwin is a, is a difficult place to work. It's hot, it's humid. You have the wet season, you have the dry season, you have cyclonic conditions, all of which can affect military and naval operations considerably. Um, it's under attack from the enemy. Um, it's, it's as far north as we can go in a place that is being constantly defended. So there's, there's a lot of different work to be done. There's the maintenance of the boom nets. 
there's the examination service, which uh, with the smaller naval vessels, which would go out, challenge expected merchant ships coming in, um, establish their credentials before letting them in. They would then be handed over to uh, the boom gate vessels who would open the boom net. And just a point on the boom net, mm. Um, this boom net was the largest floating net in the Southern Hemisphere. It stretched for six kilometres. So the actual creation of that boom net um, uh, and, and having it finished, I think, very, very early in 1942, it was a close thing. Uh, to have that functioning at that time, that was no mean feat, given that we'd had no real expertise in creating something like that previously. So there was um, a, a depot, a boom working depot established in Darwin. Uh, there was port war signal stations. The fair miles were engaged in all kind of patrol work, uh, even things like rescuing downed airmen. Every airman that saved at sea was another one that didn't have to be trained. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's how precious. The resources that went to Darwin were few. And the three services channeled to them what they had available. But as David alluded to earlier, um, very much with the, uh, the Americans running the show, a lot of those resources were needed elsewhere. So Darwin pretty well got what was available and not much more. Mm -hmm. But the naval activity, um, very varied, uh, even hydrographic work taking place and about 900 personnel based there. Okay. Sounds like it was a really, um, a, a really high tempo of activity and that the, as we've alluded to, the, the, um, the submarine and mining campaign um, was was significant. Um, so, the, the engineering achievement in having the boom created was was you know, uh, very useful. David, you've done a lot of work on on the submarine campaign um, around Australia. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how the operations off Darwin, um, the the sinking of I-124, fit into that larger picture. Yeah, well, the Japanese had a, a very advanced, technologically advanced submarine force. And these are uh, much larger type submarines than you see the Germans operating. In fact, the uh, Japanese submarines were large enough to many of them carry their own aircraft, or in fact, midget submarines, or they, were, they could also do mining. And the, certainly as part of their, um, uh, the original role for these submarines was to be Reconnaissance, um, you know, the, the first in type forces to reconnoitre the areas. And that's what you see in those early months of the war where the Japanese are sending their submarines very, very deep into um, Allied territory and to Allied waters. And so you get, in fact, in the, in the early months of 1942, mm. um, a submarine I-125 doing reconnaissance flights over Sydney, Melbourne and Hobart. And in the west, you have another submarine, one I, one, two, and three, um, doing operations off uh, Western Australia. Mm -hmm. And right, in fact, in, during 1942, uh, one Japanese submarine actually does a south about route um, from one side of Australia to another. So they're penetrating very deeply, and part of this is, is a reconnaissance mission. But then, as the um, the um, Japanese get trapped into their um, defending their their area and still with this idea as John mentioned of the the great attritional battle they're trying to think how best to do this and one of the failures in um, Japanese doctrine was they could never quite work out whether their submarines should be used for a anti-commerce campaign such as the Germans or in a concentrating solely on on um, on warships 
And certainly Japanese submarine captains preferred to sink a warship rather than, than uh, commercial ships, which means that they didn't necessarily put the effort in that would have made a huge difference. But as one of the, um, after the first phase of Japanese operations, the advance, they were moving into the second phase. And that phase entailed looking at Australia. They also knew that it was going to, it could be a base for the Americans. And they wanted to cut off Australia from um, the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And that included operating submarines east and west. And so th those operations tended to be a bit later in the war, um, such that you had the midget submarine attack in, in May, June, and that's when they really started operating in an anti-commerce role off the Australian coast and the institution of convoys, etc. But in, the very, in that early part of the war, Darwin was immediately um, targeted as a site for um, a mining campaign. And in early January, the Japanese six... So sixth submarine squadron, which was based in the Philippines, which were, had four large um, mine-laying submarines, which were actually based on the German World War I design, were sent off to mine the Torres Strait and Darwin. And this is where we get to the story of I-124, which um, uh, Tom might like to um, talk about because he's written a book on it. That'd be great. Tom, could you describe the, the action against I-124 in a little bit more detail? Neat handover, David, thank you. Um, the uh, I-124 was one of four submarines. We've actually got um, a copy of the uh, minefields from the squadron's uh, the survivors, the other three submarines survived. And uh, they'd done what they thought was uh, a pretty good job, mining the approaches to Darwin, so that if you were uh, steaming along towards Darwin, you were going to run into one of these minefields. And if you didn't, you'd run into the killing zone of... Um, the submarines which were lying in wait with their torpedoes. They had a go at this um, on the morning of the 20th of January, 1942, when there was a small convoy of three ships uh, coming into um, Darwin, two destroyers and uh, a tanker, the Trinity. And uh, the torpedo was seen on the surface that one of the submarines had fired. The um, freighter managed to avoid the uh, torpedo and um, I think it was the USS Edsel or the Alden uh, turned and attacked, and uh, of course they radio in Darwin that um, there's submarine activity outside the harbour. So, like um, somebody poking a, um, a, a beehive, I suppose, uh, all of the uh, small warships came boiling out of Darwin uh, to chase the uh, submarine threat away, or sink as many as they could. The corvettes were um, designed uh, as a, a maid of all work, not very fast, but fast enough to escort convoys, uh, a pretty good uh, anti-submarine platform. They're capable of uh, laying mines and sweeping for them as if they're equipped. They um, were pretty packed uh, with people and uh, only armed with one single uh, reasonable-sized gun, but uh, they had uh, 20 millimetres and uh, machine guns on them as well. The um, I-124 tried to torpedo the Deloraine that uh, afternoon, about 2 o'clock, and as uh, was being said before, the Japanese um, simply didn't seem to know whether they were going to attack everything, uh, warships, just commerce, uh, vessels or what. And uh, this is their undoing, I suppose. The Kriegsmarine, if they were operating um, in these sort of waters against this sort of threat, I imagine would have laid on the bottom and made like a rock. But um, the I-124, 
which unfortunately for the Japanese had the squadron submarine commander um, on board, Commander Endo. Um, he had to be on board one of the four submarines, and he was on this one. And um, Lieutenant Commander Kishigami, the submarine's commander, had a go at the Deloraine and tried to torpedo her. They saw the torpedo. Lieutenant Commander Desmond Menlap, who was the reserve um, force commander on board, in fact, the entire ship's company was uh, reservist, had uh, welded this ship's company into a very good fighting team on the way up uh, the east coast of Australia. And this was now their moment. They charged down the track of the torpedo. The I-124 half surfaced in front of them. And whether this was to fight it out with the deck gun, uh, which he was formidably equipped, or uh, there was some sort of uh, mismanoeuvre, we don't really know, but um, Deloraine depth charged her point-blank range and she went down for the last time. Of course, in wartime, you don't um, take um, half measures. You're not sure whether you have some of the best or not. So um, the depth charging went on. In fact, uh, I think Deloraine ran out of depth charges and some other vessels came up, the USS Edsel amongst them, and everybody had a bit of a go. Uh, and this continued for the rest of the day and a bit more of the next one. And finally, they decided that the submarine had been killed. There was a sighting of a second periscope on the day, and uh, I interviewed the people who did this, but the submarine squadron records show that the nearest one was about 40 kilometres away, although they were hearing the combat uh, on their hydrophones. And um, the idea was that um, the I-124 would be entered. And in fact, um, some American divers went down and they found the submarine a few days later, and the idea was to get inside her and recover the code books. This never happened. Uh, and uh, by the time some better divers were organised to come up from down south, actually did arrive, uh, but uh, they were preparing to dive. And uh, this time the Japanese came back almost a month later to the day. And this time, as we know, with the aircraft carriers, they did the job properly. So the I-124 remains there. She's been the subject of all sorts of uh, scandals and mysteries and so on over the years, but it looks like she's never been entered. The last person to dive on it was... Um, one of the uh, divers from the Navy in 1984 when there was a talk about mercury leaking into the uh, water from a, a supposed ballast, which wasn't true. And uh, Russ Crane, who later went on to become chief of the Navy, uh, was leading the dive team. And uh, so he was one of the last divers to survey her. She's all sealed up with her crew still inside. Thank you. John, there are other significant attacks on northern towns um, in Australia. Yeah, I mean, March 1942, Broome, Derby and Wyndham uh, in Western Australia were attacked. And then later in the year, in July, Horn Island, Townsville and Cairns. Can you describe the impact of these on Australia and the war effort at the time? Well, these, these attacks um, across the top end uh, took the form of harassment. Um, they weren't major military facilities. Having said that, they were home to, to a number of sort of garrisons and aircraft, Broome in particular. Uh, next to Darwin, the attack on Broome was, was probably the greatest. There were 70 people killed in that attack, in that attack, 24 aircraft destroyed. Remembering that in the Darwin raid, there were 30 aircraft destroyed in that raid, so only six less. Um, and where it's positioned there, um, you know, one has to wonder how, what, what effect that, that had on operations that unfolded in the ensuing weeks. Mm. So for example, we've got all these ships now which are retreating from uh, the Dutch East Indies. Mm. Um, those 24 aircraft aren't there to conduct reconnaissance, surveillance, provide air support to any of those retreating ships. So 
for some of those vessels making their way back to uh, Australia and, and seeking safety, that air cover would have been vital. Uh, the death of uh, 70 people in places like Broome, mm -hmm. any of those sorts of attacks mean that you, know, you can't do nothing about it when uh, somewhere in Australia is attacked. So you're going to have to channel the resources to those places to reinforce them. Um, if you're not, what is the effect on the morale of the population? What Are we cutting these people loose? Of course you're not. So valuable resources have to be channeled up there and these places have to be reinforced. But across the top end um, uh, and as far south as Catherine, they, they suffered these air attacks. Um, I think the last attack on the top end took place in November 1943. Mm -hmm. And the last enemy aircraft uh, to be shot down over Australia was in June 1944. But uh, certainly they had an effect uh, on Australian morale because they realised that it wasn't just the, the port that was being singled out for attention. All of a sudden there were these other places across northern Australia which made that threat of invasion seem more real, even though it wasn't the Japanese intention to, to most of the population or many of the population um, the threat of invasion did seem real because of that, because they were under attack. Okay. And Tom, of course, it wasn't just um, ports that were, were under attack, there were vessels attacked as well. Um, on the 22nd of January, um, the small converted minesweeper HMAS Patricia Cam uh, was attacked near the Wessel Islands by Japanese aircraft. Just wondering if you can describe the vessel and what she was doing there. Uh, Patricia Cam was uh, taking uh, some uh, human cargo, if you like, uh, from Millingimby to Darwin. Uh, she was attacked out of the sun by a Japanese float plane. Uh, she did a very good job of bombing her and uh, she began sinking rapidly and uh, people were scrambling for hatch covers and all sorts of things to, to uh, save their lives. The Japanese float plane then came back um, and uh, landed after a little bit on the water and uh, made some motions, uh, the crew got out and made some motions towards some of the survivors to come over here, you. Um, they were pointing in the main at um, Reverend Kentish, Reverend Len Kentish, a missionary. Uh, there were a lot of Aboriginal crew on board. I imagine they probably thought the, the white bloke on board was uh, in the, in the um, position of having more knowledge about what was happening, and uh, so they wanted him for intelligence purposes. Len Kentish uh, didn't want to go, <laughs> quite uh, obviously, and. Um, the Japanese uh, paddled over in a small boat and menaced him uh, until he did get on board this, the small boat. They took him back over to their float plane, got him on board and took off. He sadly was um, later executed by the Japanese. Meanwhile, the um, survivors had managed to make it to uh, land and uh, one of the uh, Aboriginal blokes pointed uh, the ship's captain in the right direction and uh, barefoot, I believe it was, he made his way for many kilometres to get a rescue. Uh, organised, and the survivors were recovered. Len Kentish was executed, I think it was about uh, two, three months later when there was a bombing raid carried out from Australia, uh, one of many by then, which we were starting to mount against the enemy. And uh, the camp in which uh, he was imprisoned was bombed and uh, several of the Japanese died. One of them, very angry the next uh, day, the loss of one of his friends, decided that he was going to organise the execution of some Allied prisoners um, as a reprisal. And Len Kentish was chosen and taken down to a beach and uh, beheaded. Uh, this was uh, followed up after the war and uh, measures were taken against those responsible. There's a road south of Darwin named after uh, Len Kentish, 
His uh, family, meanwhile, had been evacuated out of the territory unknowing about his fate uh, by train because the evacuations continued. Most of them have been by ship uh, from December 41, and uh, they continued right up until the first raid, but after that it was deemed too dangerous. And any remaining survivors, uh, even um, civilian workers, if they weren't absolutely essential, were being evacuated south to all sorts of cities and towns around Australia. We didn't particularly want to, to receive them. Uh, because it was rather hard to accommodate them. So the Territory was, yes, as you say, um, struck by many other raids. Um, it's something that Australians don't seem to know too much about. The 19th February raid itself, the biggest uh, attack ever made on the Australian landmass by enemy forces, was certainly a massive raid. And slowly the uh, truth of the matter had been filtering out, not because it had been withheld, but because the government had no real interest in spreading the word that we'd been trounced. Uh, but there was an inquiry held, and uh, the truth wasn't withheld, as uh, many allege. But um, slowly also the stories of other raids uh, were making their way south as well. And some of these were massive. They were up to 60 aircraft at a time. The uh, research I've been doing over the past few years showed there were 208 organised incursions by Japanese aircraft. They lost 61 aircraft, um, 188 of their aircrew, and we have scattered across the, the top end here um, many, many Japanese aircraft in the water, um, on the land. Most of them lost because it's such a massive area and it's expensive and difficult and it's hot uh, to go looking for aircraft. And of course, we also have lots and lots of allied aircraft. But as has been said before, this continued uh, for the next two years. By 1943, um, David, the, the North had weathered all of these attacks and was uh, now starting to be the base, the springboard from which, um, or one of the springboards from which Australia and Allied forces mounted their attacks. Just wondering if you can describe that transition. Well, you've got to be careful, I think, in calling it a springboard. Um, okay. After um, those raids, the early raids that Tom's talked about, the really there was no chance of Darwin being used as a major fleet base. It was just too risky. But what it was, was a, a still an extremely important logistic port and um, for a number of reasons. Um, T East or Timor, for example, where the, um, there had been a small um, Australian and Dutch force left behind uh, when the Japanese invaded, they needed to be supplied. And so there was quite a, um, a regular service from Darwin to Timor um, taking troops, ammunition, um, and bringing out wounded and civilians as required. And that can, was an extremely dangerous task. And um, as we know, HMAS Voyager was lost in one of those missions, as was HMAS Armidale later on. So, uh, but the other major logistic aspect for, for Darwin was as part of the, um, this, this Northern War. Uh, we mentioned that um, uh, General Douglas MacArthur had, was the Supreme Commander in the Southwest Pacific area. And he was starting his island hopping campaign to the north to regain ground against the Japanese by going into New Guinea, where we had the foothold at Port Moresby, but the Japanese had the northern coast of New Guinea. And um, I mentioned that the Japanese were trying to intercept our supply lines, um, mainly with submarines because the Battle of Coral Sea and subsequently Midway had meant that the Japanese never managed to establish control of the sea south of um, port or south of New Guinea and that really meant they were limited to submarines if they wanted to make attacks or, or aircraft 
And particularly when we, we've mentioned how close um, Darwin is to the front line, it means that using any of these um, sea lines of communication from Darwin to the, to the um, east particularly are within ja range of Japanese aircraft. And so um, one of the key things about this war in, in New Guinea is the matter of supply. Supply was the major problem for both sides. And when it came down to it, the side that, that could outdo the other with uh, men, material, equipment was going to win. And hence, this is why the importance of these, these um, convoys that were running up the East Coast, and in fact from Darwin through Torres Strait to Port Moresby, because Port Moresby was the centre where the build-up was going to happen. So you ended up with um, a lot of escort missions for the, for the naval ships, um, for, sorry, for the, for the convoys from Darwin through, to, through the Torres Strait to Port Moresby. Um, it was a vital part of the supply um, system to uh, keep the war in New Guinea going and then advance from there in the island, uh, island hopping campaign with that major threat coming from um, occasionally submarines but mostly aircraft. Okay. John, we've mentioned before the variety of of naval um, craft that were, were involved in these operations that David's just mentioned. But I'm wondering if you can just give people uh, a, a bit of a feel for how big something like a Fairmile or an HTML um, craft is. Are, are we talking something that's you know, sort of like a destroyer that we see on Sydney Harbour or, or, or something much smaller? Not at all. Um, the the fair miles and the harbour defence motor launches were were referred to as ships, right? But they were very very small ships. Harbour defence motor launch, 80 feet long. Fair miles, not much bigger. Uh, crew on a harbour defence motor launch, 11 or 12. Fair miles, probably about 20. Now, there was all kinds of activities going on. David touched on the fact that they were resupplying some of these um, troops that remained at large in places like Timor. And the Fairmiles conducted a number of clandestine operations uh, in connection with supporting them. Um, there was the Services Reconnaissance Department waging its own secret war. Mm -hmm. There was a lugger maintenance section uh, in Darwin, which was a code name for the, the forward part of the Services Reconnaissance Department. And they mounted a number of, of missions there. Um, and one of the Fairmiles, uh, ML814, uh, it was involved in a number of these, Operation Mosquito and uh, Legato, Cobra, Bulldozer. Uh, some of those names were the Army names, some were the Navy names, but at least on two occasions, ML814 uh, put operatives in mm -hmm. to Timor and evacuated civilians out. The sad part about uh, that is the operatives that they put in were almost immediately compromised and the Japanese were able to keep the premise up using these people uh, against their will, of course, to, to uh, forward bogus reports from Timor on the premise that you know, they were still active and, and conducting their uh, espionage, if you want. Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't the case. They were very much under the Japanese control, and that didn't be become obvious until much later. But ML814 uh, supported a number of these missions to reinforce them. Uh, and finally, it was another ML, one of the fair miles that went in there uh, that put in a, a group when uh, there was something a bit fishy going on here. And the Sunlag operation was the one that revealed that they had in fact been compromised and that the Japanese had been 
you know, pretty well playing the Allies the whole way. But it didn't negate the danger involved in those vessels running that, that gauntlet to and from Timor. Uh, there they were subject to attack from the air, they were subject to attack from the sea, and when they were inside of land, of course, they were subject to attack from the Japanese army. So great risk uh, and great bravery shown by those people. Tom, I'm just wondering if you could um, add a little bit to what John's told us and, and talk a little bit about the distances um, that are involved in, in these small craft operating around the north of Australia and, and give us an idea of how they responded um, to these, these uh, threats of, of nature and, and, and the enemy forces um, as they supported the army. Pretty horrible work, really. Uh, thankless in many respects. This uh, run backwards and forwards in uh, things such as Operation Hamburger, which is sort of aptly named, uh, where a lot of people got caught up and died. Um, and a lot of it's still not that, um, that covered by ourselves. Uh, the um, Operation, I think, Voyage has already been alluded to, uh, quite often uh, resulted in the Japanese catching uh, these ships in places which were disadvantageous to themselves and paying the penalty. Voyage is still there on the beach at Batano. Uh, wreckage can still be seen. Um, the um, ships are mainly small. We were talking about fair miles before HTMLs, but uh, you also found uh, other smaller vessels. Nothing much bigger than a corvette. Um, you did find uh, early on, though, things like the sloop Yarra, uh, which was caught in a convoy, and uh, she was the sole defence of a small convoy and went down fighting with uh, Robert Rankin in charge. He was a surveyor um, in charge of a small warship. And to give you an idea of how pushed we were, 1942 was a very bad year for us, uh, and um, the losses were many uh, and fast and furious. As if Sydney's loss the previous uh, November 41 with 645 people wasn't bad enough off Western Australia. So I imagine morale must have been pretty low, but our people certainly acquitted themselves well. Um, the one that, of course, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time working on is Armadale's loss with Teddy Sheehan uh, manning his um, 20 millimeter Alikan cannon to the last. And um, the operation that went on after that was uh, somewhat tragic in that um, radio silence was being kept by most of these vessels. Armadale was no exception and when she was caught by many Japanese aircraft and went down under a hail of torpedoes and bombs, uh, there was no real need to sound the alarm. She wasn't expected back for some time. Um, the uh, men who survived certainly behaved heroically um, and uh, did a great job of rescuing themselves Eventually, when rescue operations were mounted, uh, tragically, one of the life rafts, one of the rafts, sorry, um, which was spotted by a Catalina, which couldn't land on the water, it being too rough, uh, was photographed and position marked. But when surface vessels tried to find her again, she was lost. And um, this sort of uh, small ship operation characterises what's happening up to the north of Australia. Uh, and um, it's, uh, I suppose, in the end, the tide gradually turns. And uh, the, the war that carries on up here is naval, but also very much an air war as well. And uh, we gradually turned operations around so that we were doing to the Japanese what they've been doing to us, uh, these carrying out bombing raids um, from our land bases against their land bases. 
and uh, this is mainly the province of the Americans, although also the um, RAF was here with Spitfire squadrons uh, and even the Dutch uh, who'd come back um, with a reformed squadron and were carrying out bombing operations themselves. So very much um, a busy area of the war in the Pacific uh, and gradually seeing the tide being turned. And of course, we're concentrating on some of the smaller pictures here, but as uh, I've no doubt all our listeners know so well, Coral Sea, which has been mentioned, was the check, and uh, then Midway was the the stop, if you like, of the Japanese ambition. Though as a result, um, though as a measure of how tough they were, their, their navy and army, uh, they didn't have an air force, um, it took us three years and two APOs before we managed to prosecute the war successfully all the way back to the home islands and bring it to an end. Thank you. Gentlemen, I think you've given us a a really, a really good picture of, of the intensity of the war that didn't occur in the Far East, but in fact occurred in Australia's near north. Um, can I ask you, um, David, starting with you, just for any final thoughts? I think I'd like to just reinforce the point that for the first time in its history in 1942, Australia was under a real threat and that wasn't a threat of invasion. It was a threat of being cut off from the rest of the world. And we need to remember that Australia is a maritime nation and the threat is likely to come that way, not in the sense of an invasion. Thank you. John. Um, I think I, I'd like to comment on the heroism by those people uh, who were subjected to that first attack on the day. There was tremendous heroism shown in and around uh, the city of Darwin and particularly on the harbour in rescuing the men from the Peary, the Neptuna and other ships that were sunk. Um, Darwin Harbour is, is not the sort of place to go swimming at the best of times with box jellyfish and, and sharks and, uh, and all the other sort of nasties that are there. But can you imagine when it's, it's slick with oil, burning oil um, and all manner of people went to the assistance of those in need. Searchlight operators from the garrisons, there was no need for searchlights, it was broad daylight they took to the water to rescue people. Naval personnel, you know, did whatever they could to help fellow mariners and shipmates. Um, and the confusion and the bewilderment of not knowing what to do. I spoke to a, uh, a veteran who was there uh, some years ago. We became quite good friends. And I remember I met him in Darwin uh, some years ago before he passed away. Mm. And he showed me the spot that he slept on the ground with two mates dressed only in khaki shorts, armed with a 303 rifle and a clip of ammunition just outside where government house is. And he said, to this day, I'm not sure what they expected us to do with that rifle, but we felt better for having it with us and, and this is where we slept. But great confusion following the raid, absolute bewilderment. And uh, I think pursuant to that raid, there, we recognise the need that, you know, OK, we need to go forth from here and, and consolidate on that. So they certainly became better at it. Uh, 200 raids all up on Australia across the top end. Mm. And I think that that's uh, probably something that most Australians aren't aware of. Thank you. Tom. Any yes, um, just reminded that this morning, uh, I'm in Darwin, of course, uh, a B-52 went over my house at about six. <laughs> and uh, a lot of noise it made too with its eight engines. The Americans uh, arrived here and uh, as we've uh, pointed out, this was not so much to uh, 
base themselves here is used as a stepping stone, perhaps. But um, one American general said uh, it's a giant aircraft carrier which doesn't go anywhere. And um, without um, the Americans being here, we would have been cut off from the American support. And we were certainly already cut off from British support. And I think that would have been the end for Australia. So only 10 kilometres from where I sit, we have 2,700 US Marines who are now based here. Uh, the Americans are a constant presence and we work constantly with them. As a reminder of that, I'm just looking at a book on my shelf, um, Officer of the Deck by Herb Kriloff. He was um, an officer on board USS William B. Preston, um, a Clemson-class destroyer like the Peary, uh, but she was the one who survived. She'd been converted to a seaplane tender and she was looking after four Catalinas, one of which was shot down in the day and is outside the harbour somewhere still. And the other three sunk uh, in the harbour. I've dived them many times and as has been pointed out, it's not a great place for diving, uh, but we, we do our little bit. Uh, the place is littered with um, debris and wrecks from World War II. And uh, Herb is still alive. He lives uh, down in Melbourne. I think he's about 102 now. Uh, and um, he is not capable of being interviewed, sadly, but um, a tremendous bloke. And uh, that book's certainly worth reading, I think, Officer of the Deck. But uh, for me, that's a reminder that um, the war turned here, pivoted here. Uh, it was touch and go in 1942, but uh, we came out the other end. Uh, for me, I don't, I can't ever forget that living here as I as I do. Uh, it's a reminder that um, the world is a precarious place sometimes, uh, maybe hopefully less so. Uh, but uh, here in uh, Northern Australia, we do have that daily, weekly reminder of uh, what happened here in the war, and long may we never forget. Definitely, gentlemen. Thank you. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series. There are more to be found just by searching for Naval Studies Group in your podcast app. See you next time.